The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. If I were to ask you, what is the most relentless and powerful force you've ever experienced firsthand, what would you say? The most relentless and powerful force that you ever experienced firsthand. I think of Mikey, who a couple weeks ago was teaching on Acts chapter 3, and he talked about being from Charleston and how hurricanes you know, are a thing in Charleston and how his dad grumpily refuses to ever budge in light of a hurricane. So maybe if you're from the coast, you think of a hurricane. Maybe you think of Hurricane Hugo back in 1989, which devastated the coast of South Carolina. I was two. I don't recall much about it, but some of you might. Maybe for you, you think about uh, videos you've seen online of floodwaters just moving buildings and vehicles like they're made out of paper, just completely, like, sweeping them away. I I spent a couple of weeks in New Orleans right after Katrina, uh, participating in cleanup in the Ninth Ward, and one of the things, one of the pictures that's just stuck in my brain was as we were getting a tour through the Ninth Ward initially, there was these two two two-story houses next to each other, and pinned between these two houses was a Ford Explorer. Like on, on, the, the second, on the roof of the second story as a result of the flooding that took place there. Can you imagine that? What kind of power? Like vulgar, like gratuitous power on display. Maybe for, for you, none of that compares with the task of trying to get something out of a toddler's mouth. If you've ever had that experience. The superhuman display of strength and dexterity and speed and stamina that a toddler somehow you know, musters up. Now, what's striking to me when I think of power, is, is the power of plants. Have you ever seen one of those uh, instances where a tree is kind of growing around a piece of metal? It's like a tree has grown over decades and decades, like totally swallowed up and bent bicycles and fences and consumed it. Uh, growing up, my parents had this creek that was in the back of their house, and I remember there was this tree back there that we discovered one day that had barbed wire kind of coming in and out of the tree. And it's just amazing that a tree could swallow barbed wire over a great length of time. It's pretty wild. This week I read about something called the rock-splitting cherry tree in Japan. Now this is a national monument in the capital city in a district of Japan. It's a 400, estimated to be 400-year-old cherry tree that looks like it burst out of a rock. I have a picture on the screen here for you. Look at that thing. They estimate that thing to be 400 years old and it is like splitting up out of a piece of granite, which is a significant task, right? Here's another picture a little bit closer up, just to see. Look at that, the way the tree just maybe settled in a crack decades ago and split that bad boy in two. What's amazing is that 400 years ago, it started as a seed, a tiny, barely perceptible seed, and it fell into a crack in a granite boulder. And then day after day after day, it advanced and it advanced and it advanced with a kind of steady power over years and decades and centuries until the strength of granite couldn't stand up beneath its power, and the the thing split in two. Literally, a tree split a boulder in two. We're talking hundreds of tons of force generated from the single seed applied over years and years and years, an unrelenting power capable of splitting stone. It's pretty amazing, right? Now, we're studying the book of Acts, and if the book of Acts is about anything, it's about an advance. What we've said in, in sort of our summary of the book of Acts is that Acts tells us the story of the unfolding of the Father's sovereign plan to send his spirit to create and commission a people to make Jesus known. 
Or to say that differently, Acts is about advance, the advance of the message of Jesus. The good news that Jesus is resurrected and that he rules over everything as king and that all people groups and all ethnicities are invited to enter the kingdom forgiven with a forgiveness that has been achieved by the blood of Christ. Now the story so far, as we've studied this book together over the last few weeks, the story so far begins right in the heart of Jerusalem with this tiny, barely perceptible to the naked eye band of followers in the city of Jerusalem where Jesus promises that tiny group of followers that this seed will grow. He says, you're going to be given a supernatural power through the Holy Spirit and you'll advance as my witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria all the way to the ends of the earth. And then Christ In the first eight verses after that, Christ leaves his followers and he does exactly what he promised he would do. He goes and he sits at the Father's right hand, supreme over everything, and he sends his Holy Spirit down. And from that point on, the church is ignited and let loose and propelled forward by the Holy Spirit as they begin to minister and preach in Jesus' name and Jesus' power. And as you'd imagine, this movement begins to attract attention, both good attention and bad attention. Our story today is the second story of controversy in the book of Acts. The the religious leaders see the the way that God is seemingly blessing the work of these apostles, and they crack down on the church, they crack down on the gospel's advance, but we realize that there is an ironclad truth at play here that we'll discover in just a second. Let's look again at verse 12 of chapter 5. Now, many signs and wonders were, were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. That is, it's, it's like a, a kind of court outside of the temple, sometimes called Solomon's porch. It's like literally a courtyard before you enter into the temple. So the apostles are performing miracles and they're teaching there in that little courtyard. Verse 13. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. All right, so we've divided the book of Acts up into to three portions, and the first portion very much centers on Jerusalem. The church's beginnings are very much located here within the city of Jerusalem. And it's amazing how temple-centric, we might say, these early stories of the church are. In chapter 2, verse 46, we're told that they are in the temple worshiping day after day after day. That's where the Christian church began initially, was in the temple city of Jerusalem. In chapters 3 and 4, we're told about a controversy at the temple, actually in the same area where Peter and John heal a lame man, and then we have this ensuing confrontation with the religious leaders, which Peter and John totally win. Now today, we have another controversy once again in and around the temple, but this time, everything is escalated. Everything is escalated. Now, there's theological reasons for why all of these events start at the temple. One is that God is wanting to be loud and clear that he is doing something new, that God is building a new, truer temple, and that through Christ, he's assembling a truer people of God. That those who receive Jesus as the Christ, they constitute the covenant people of God. We'll see soon that this promise to be God's people extends beyond Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. It it extends beyond national and ethnic boundaries. It goes to all tribes, tongues, nations, multitudes, men, and women, Peter tells us. And the religious leaders aren't aloof to these events happening at the temple and the importance of that. 
they see God seemingly blessing the apostles. I mean, they say themselves, it's hard to dispute the fact that this guy wasn't walking and now he is walking. So they recognize that something is up with the apostles. They see that the crowds favor the apostles and they see the apostles' power with a ridiculous kind of potency. I mean, we're told that the, they're bringing the sick in cots just in hopes that Peter's shadow might like graze across one of them and heal the people. It's amazing. And we're told that the religious leaders are jealous. We studied the uh, seven deadly sins a couple of years ago, and one quote that stuck out to me from that particular study was um, one thinker in thinking about jealousy said, very tongue-in-cheek, of all of the seven deadly sins, envy is the least fun. Have you ever experienced jealousy or envy before? It is a miserable place to live, and yet we log on again and again to be confronted with that old high school, what she's doing, how much better she is at it than us. We log on again, I guess, because we're gluttons for punishment to see that sort of thing. Envy is an awful thing. The Proverbs say it like this in Proverbs 14.30, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. That's a vivid image. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot like a cancer of the bone marrow that eats you from the inside out is envy. Edmund Spencer, a poet from a long time ago, he, he wrote a story where he depicted the seven deadly sins as these monsters. And in that story, envy is riding a wolf, chewing a poisonous toad. It's like, ugh, what a horrible depiction. And what a perfect depiction of what envy, the experience of envy is like. What we said during that series, we made this observation, is that envy isn't content to just be envy. Envy always wants to grow, and envy full-grown wants to punish rather than love our neighbor. Watch what happens next, verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, filled with jealousy, the ugliest of the vices, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Now, what we mentioned a couple of moments ago is that this story is, a, is in many ways just an escalation of the story that we've already read before. So earlier, we're told that Peter and John in this same location heal a blind man. There, the duo is apprehended, they're questioned, they're given a stern talking to, and then a slap on the wrist before being let go. Here, in this encounter, it's not just Peter and John. Instead, it's, we're told it's all the apostles, presumably all 12 of the apostles and probably some more folks with them. And they're not just healing the lame man, but healing people in droves. It's hard not to think about the, the echoes with Jesus' own life here. You read through the Gospels, particularly the early chapters of Matthew, and again and again we're given these statements about how the masses just flocked to Jesus, how people were desperate to just be in his company in hopes that Jesus could heal them. Like they recognized the kind of potency of, of Jesus' power and the way that the Spirit rested on them. And they said, we've got to move close to this guy. In the same way, the same thing is happening to the apostles. Peter's shadow is literally healing people. I mean, it's, it's reminiscent of the story of the woman who just wants to touch the fringes of Jesus' garment. It's also reminiscent of the story of the friends who cut a hole in the roof to bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus. Here, the Spirit is so thick with power on the apostles, and God is so richly blessing them that the masses flock, and the religious leaders get jealous. Again, much like they did with Jesus, they are jealous, and they conspire to arrest the apostles. Verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord, watch this, angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go, stand at the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. 
So they're in prison, and then we're told, an angel grants them release and tells them, keep at it. Keep preaching. The people need to hear the words of this life. And I I love that super unique phrase there. The message of the kingdom are the words of this life. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean that the, the angel is encouraging them to preach the words of this life? What is the this? Like, what is the life that's being referred to here? Elsewhere, the gospel message is, is described even by Luke in, in the gospel of Luke as the words of eternal life, the words of life. But in Acts, one of the specific sort of, I guess, nuances we could say that the, the Acts has kind of on the word life is that it's very, 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 very zeroed in on the fact that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. So in Acts, when, it seemed, when, when, when we're, we're talking about a life, it seems like the best way to read this is, is that we're talking about Jesus' life, Jesus' resurrection life. The fact that Jesus used to be dead and he isn't anymore. Jesus is alive. It's striking actually how much the resurrection is in the book of Acts. I mean, it's almost on every page. It is central to the apostles' work and message. And so the angel says, as he's granting them release from prison, go and keep preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus used to be dead, but now Jesus is living. He was deceased. He is now not deceased very much not deceased. He is present tense, 160 pounds of Jewish human DNA ruling the galaxy, hearing your prayers, pouring his spirit on his people. If you're here and you're not a Christian, that is literally what we believe is that Jesus was dead and he is alive and he is alive forevermore. And the angel says, you're free. Go speak that message. Go preach the resurrection. Preach about the living Jesus of Nazareth who gives his spirit and forgiveness on those who repent and believe. And then watch how Luke narrates this next little bit. Tell me if any of this sounds familiar to you. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with them, they called together the council, all the synod of the people of Israel, and they sent to the prison to have the apostles brought out. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this could come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing at the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So they're imprisoned, and then an angel appears and says, you're free now, go preach. And then we're told that they go preach at daybreak. They were told that the prison was securely locked, just as it had left been, that there were guards at the door, and the soldiers report back. They say, we looked, and there's no one inside. The men you are seeking are not here. Does any of that sound familiar? Luke seems to be very intentionally recalling the resurrection of Jesus. The same spirit that brings Jesus back to life is the same spirit that is at work in the apostles. It's the same spirit animating their preaching and their miracles. And it's the same spirit that refuses any obstacle to stand in the way of the advance of the kingdom. We mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but again and again, the church is displayed as almost literally the body of Christ in the book of Acts. There's a guy named Brian Rosner. He's an Australian theologian, which means his quotes are especially excellent. Uh, when he says them. Uh, But we said, this is a helpful summary of the Christian life, that to be a Christian is to live the life story of Jesus. 
That's, in essence, that's what it means to be a Christian, is to live the life story of Jesus, to follow and pattern our lives after Christ. And it's remarkable how often Luke seems to recall events in Jesus' life in order to, to describe what's happening in the life of the church, and this is no exception. Verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. I love that. They have filled Jerusalem with their teaching. You filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. They say, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Just like they said in chapter 4. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And you know what? So is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill them. It's interesting to see the escalation here. The miracles are greater and the opposition is stronger. It goes from a slap on the wrist to imprisonment to a desire ultimately to put to death. Because what the apostles are saying is that the man whose blood is on your hands, Jesus of Nazareth, you killed. And Jesus of Nazareth is Lord, I love that he says leader. It's like a, a very unique way to describe Jesus. It's like a, almost a, a way to demonstrate. Like we're not, we're not bound to do the things that you tell us to do. Jesus is the leader with a capital L. He is leader and he is Savior, and he is the one who grants repentance and forgiveness to Israel, to all who would believe. We're witnesses to these things. We've seen Jesus resurrected. And then, he, really interestingly, he says, and so is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, he says, is a witness. Something we talked about a couple of weeks ago in Acts chapter 2 was, like, I don't know, priority number one for the Holy Spirit is exalting Christ. It's like there's a lot of things we could say about the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does and a lot of things the Holy Spirit does in Scripture. But Scripture is abundantly clear. The Holy Spirit is a witness to Christ. The Holy Spirit is about exalting Jesus. So the Holy Spirit always turns our attention and our hearts to Christ. And so to be a, a Spirit-filled people, step one is to be a very Christ-centric people. The Holy Spirit is a witness to Christ who is resurrected and who grants forgiveness. Now, what's going to happen? Verse 34. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. He says, we need to have a, an intramural chat for a second. Verse 35. He said to the men of Israel, take care of what you're about to do with these men. Gosh, how, how foreboding. Take care of what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. He says, let's think about this for a second. Here's, here's two recent examples. Thutis and, and Judas, these two guys led movements, and they had followers, but once we put them to death... The following fizzled out. No, nothing came of it. And he's saying, we put Jesus to death, and sure, you know, they're causing a kerfuffle around Jerusalem, but let's take it easy with these guys. Verse 38. 
In the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Within the first months of the church's life, somebody says, let's see where this goes. And the way that this movement advances, the way that this thing shakes out, that's going to be evidence as to the legitimacy of their message. He says, if they're like the other guys, this movement will fizzle out in no time. You know, again, they're, they're going to cause some trouble. Let's just weather the storm. And if this thing is of man, it'll fizzle out. But he says, if this thing persists, if this movement catches steam, if this happens to spread from Jerusalem and then to Judea and then to Samaria and then to parts of Europe and then to the Americas and then to Africa and then to China and then to Moon and the Mar- Mars, if we go there, if it, if it continues to spread like that, and if there's people, say, in South Carolina 2,000 years later who are worshiping in Jesus' name, then we'll know that this was a work of God. Be careful your opposition to this, Gamaliel says. If this is from God, it cannot, will not be overthrown. Verse 39. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Our takeaway here is simply this. You hear some really good news tonight. The kingdom advances unceasingly. The kingdom advances unceasingly. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew verse 13. This is what our children are going to be studying in our backyard Bible club, the parables of Jesus, these kingdom parables. Matthew 13 verse 31. Jesus put another parable before the people, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Jesus said in Matthew 13, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. 2,000 years ago, it started as the seed, a tiny, barely perceptible seed in a crack in Jerusalem. And then day after day after day, it advanced and advanced and advanced with a kind of steady power of years and decades and centuries, such that there is no force that can stop or oppose the advance of the kingdom. There is no obstacle that isn't eventually broken in two by the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. It was that way in Acts. And we're going to see it happen again, we're going to see it happen again, we're going to see it happen again, that every attempt of the enemy to stamp the church out only spreads it further. It was that way in Acts, and it is that way for you and I right now. And it's going to be that way tomorrow, and it's going to be that way the next day, and it's going to be that way the next day. There are no prison cells that can slow the advance of the gospel. You know how the book of Acts ends? Just like verse 42. Paul's in prison, and it says that he preached the gospel without hindrance. The book literally ends on the phrase, unhinderedly. 
The gospel advances unhinderedly. It's like the the book of Acts of the Apostles, it's rather better named, the Acts of Jesus by his spirit, through his word, advancing his kingdom, through and across all barriers. That was too much of a mouthful, so they went with Acts. There are no ethnic lines, there are no cultural lines, there are no leaders, there are no authorities, there are no governments, there is no persecution, there are no swords, there is no suffering, not even death. Nothing can stop Jesus from advancing his kingdom and building his church. More sure than tomorrow's sunrise. More inevitable and more permanent than the changing of seasons. With a diamond-clad certainty, the kingdom of Jesus will be established forever. But there's a few things that this doesn't mean for us. The first thing this doesn't mean is that the kingdom's advance is not easy. We talk about the Christian life is living the life story of Jesus, right? How did Jesus' life look? Jesus went down in order that he could go up. He came to die in order that he could be resurrected. And the same is true for us. He's a cross-bearing king, and this is a cross-shaped kingdom. Through suffering, through humility, through dishonor, like Jesus, we take our crosses, we go down, and then one day, with and like him, we will go up. Verse 41, I mean, we see this in the apostles. I mean, they're, they're piecing together what it means to be Jesus' people. They're understanding with clarity now what it means to take up a cross and follow Jesus when they say that they counted it an honor to suffer for the name. They're beginning to understand that this is what it means to be the church, is to embrace the reproach of the cross day after day after day. It looks like suffering dishonor. dishonor. It's, we're counted worthy to do so. It's incredible. In Acts chapter 14, Paul, Paul and Barnabas are preaching, making disciples, 1422. It says that they're strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom's advance, though inevitable, it is through cross-bearing. It is not easy, it is not triumphalistic, but it's the way of King Jesus. This is how the kingdom advances. But there's a second thing it doesn't mean. The kingdom's inevitable, permanent, ironclad, diamond-clad, bulletproof advance does not mean that our church will grow. God has been incredibly gracious to our church. I mean, I think about the baptisms we had yesterday. Wasn't that so sweet to be able to come together on a Saturday morning and baptize a brother and sister in Jesus? Baptisms yesterday, I think about the new building. I mean, for crying out loud, God gave us a building, guys. It's makes no sense that it's God's generosity. And then he's given us the money to enable us to renovate and move into that bad boy. It's incredible. Tonight, we're voting on nine new members It's excellent. We're seeing people being added to our church. Since we planted the church, God has been granting us steady increase. Our budgets are growing. and All of the the earthly metrics are growing. People are growing in Christ. We're getting deeper in discipleship. But none of this is guaranteed. The kingdom will advance, and it's going to advance with or without us. We are given the opportunity to play a part in a long chain of faithful brothers and sisters who have come before us and who will come after us. And so the kingdom's inevitable, bulletproof advance is not any kind of promise about TCGS, but it is an invitation to participate in what God is doing by his spirit through his church. May our church play the long game. Recognize it doesn't start with us, it doesn't stop with us. We are not the only church in town. We have been handed a torch to steward it well. And we want to celebrate the faithfulness of brothers and sisters that have gone before us and who will come after us.
the kingdom advances unceasingly. Now, maybe you're here tonight, and you, were, you entered in just completely beat up. Your week was chaotic. You feel overwhelmed by the news feeds. You came in completely exhausted. And my word to you, friend, is hear the wonderful news that the kingdom of Christ will be established. It is established, and it will be forever. And one day, every knee and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Jesus will bring his good rule, and he will, he will restore all things. He will make all sad things untrue. He will, he will wipe away tears, and he will offer banquets to his people. This is, this is our hope. This is the Christian hope, that the kingdom is forever. Maybe you came in here tonight, and you, your, your arm was twisted, and you brought, you're brought in against your will. You say, I don't believe. You say, I can't even wrap my mind around the things that Christians say. And I just wonder if you could see the power to this story, the story of the kingdom of Christ and of his gospel. I'd encourage you to take Gamaliel's words seriously here. Like, is this not something to think about? Why is it that all of the movements that were started by these would-be messiahs fizzled out, but 2,000 years later, here we stand, still singing to Jesus, still reading his word, still celebrating the work that he's done. And if you're here tonight and you've been walking faithfully, investing and investing and investing and, and building and building and building and evangelizing and discipling, make, press on. Keep pressing forward. Press on in faith. Press on in confidence and trust that King Jesus is at work through our efforts by his spirit. May we be a church that trusts Jesus, a church whose confidence is rooted fully and completely in the promise of his kingdom. And may the kingdom advance through TCGS. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you like our brothers and sisters did so long ago, and we say, enable us to walk with the kind of certainty and the kind of, the kind of confidence, and would you empower us by your spirit to go about making you known in the places that you put us. For those of us that are called to preach and to preach boldly, I pray that we would preach the resurrection, the, the life with boldness and with clarity, and that people would respond and believe. For those of us who have been placed in settings where we're, we're working on a coworker, we're, we're, we're praying for a coworker, we're praying for a family member, we're sharing the gospel with them. I think of a brother who was just earlier today talking about his grandfather who he's sharing the gospel with. I pray, God, that you would bless those efforts. And I pray, Jesus, that you would give us a kind of sober-mindedness about what it means to live the life story of you. To be a, a cross-bearing people who, who whose lives are cross-shaped in the way that yours was, Jesus. May we be a people of humility and service and a, and a kind of deep devotion to you, to your mission, your word. We pray, God, that you would allow us to be faithful with the task of making you known and that we would see ourselves as a, as a part of a larger body and a larger kingdom that extends well beyond just us. But we've been given the privilege and the great responsibility to participate in this this life together as the church. And I do pray for anyone here tonight who 
has not yet believed, I pray that they would wrestle seriously with the claims of the scriptures about Jesus' resurrection and that they would see, and, and, and not just see like their gritted teeth or see begrudgingly, but their eyes and hearts would be opened and they would be overwhelmed with the glory and magnitude of the resurrection of Jesus. We pray that as we sing um, in these next few moments, we pray that our hearts are stirred to worship and we pray that you're glorified, Lord Jesus. We love you. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.